America. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, Special Operations Military News, and Straight Talk with the Guys in the Community. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to Soft Rep Radio. Soft Rep Radio on time, on target. I'm your host this evening, Steve Bellastrieri. Joining me is a very, very special guest, uh, somebody I've known for quite a few years, although we lost touch for a little while, my old commander from Panama. Uh, at that time, he was Major Kevin Higgins and retired as a colonel. Uh, we're going to take a break a little bit from Afghanistan tonight. Uh, I know everyone's been inundated with that stuff. We're going to be talking about Latin America, and, and Kevin is a subject matter expert on Latin America. We're going to talk about SF in Latin America from 62 through present day, and we'll we'll, uh, we'll touch on a bunch of different subjects that I believe our listeners will really enjoy. But before we do that, Kevin, uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, we appreciate your time. And I got to tell you, your beard's a lot better looking than mine is. <laughs> well, good to see you again, uh, Steve. And uh, congratulations on this uh, the, the SoftRip uh, program. It's really uh, an important contribution to the uh, community. Well, we appreciate that, especially coming from someone like you, because I don't believe there was a harder working guy at, at the time when we were all stationed in Panama than yourself. And uh, I had Stu Braden on the podcast a few months ago, and we we were laughing about how at times we'd have to drag you out of the uh, the office to get you to get a meal in. <laughs> yeah, no, that was uh, those were some good, uh, good times there. We had some uh, good missions back then. Um, we did, and well, a lot of good people. Yeah, yeah, but. Uh, yeah, uh, Steve, as you were saying, I, I guess the last uh, 46 years I've been uh, affiliated with Latin America. Um, I, I didn't anticipate it would turn out this way, but uh, I guess my association began as a cadet at West Point. Uh, when we enter the academy, you have to take some tests to see how you're going to do in certain subjects. And they saw that I was going to be pretty weak in math and science, which is the whole uh, program there. They have engineering programs. So everybody has to take a language. And the easier language uh, department was the Portuguese language department because it was uh, run by the Brazilian uh, officers, the exchange officers. And they said, this is going to be where we're going to put you for your language because you're going to need all the time you can get to dedicate to math and science there. And uh, 
as I was studying Brazilian Portuguese, I started to learn a little bit about Latin America. I'm from Detroit. No, I had no affiliation at all with Latin America in my whole life as growing up. But as I started to study about Brazil and stuff like this, when it came time uh, as we were getting ready to graduate and you have to pick your next assignment, uh, I saw Panama's up there as one of the options. And so I said, well, gosh, I'm going to go to Panama because maybe I can catch a Mac flight down to Brazil when I'm there and, and see some of these places that we've been studying about, you know, that you see in the magazines, Ipanema Beach, Copacanana, you know, maybe I could get there because I just assumed that in Panama it was going to be a ditch running through the jungle. But when I got off the plane in Panama as a second lieutenant, I saw Panama City, million people there. Uh, quite a, uh, a, a an explosive uh, city there on the uh, Caribbean and on the Pacific. And I realized that uh, this was a part of the world that, you know, uh, was uh, not well known. And I, I said, you know, maybe I'm going to uh, hang my hat here and, and, and put my uh, energy and force into knowing about Latin America and learning about it. We had enough Soviet experts at that time, Middle East experts. North Korean experts. So, so I, I says, I'm going to go ahead and become uh, uh, drilled down here. And uh, I showed up there in the 193rd Brigade. I was uh, there on the Atlantic side in the 4th to the 10th Infantry. Uh, I was living at Fort Gulick, which was at the time the home of the 3rd Battalion, 7th Group. So I was sharing the same BOQ with these lieutenants and captains from the 3rd uh, the of the 7th. And we would exchange stories. And so I learned about SF during that time. Uh, these were the Jimmy Carter years, so they weren't deploying much, but they were helping the seventh, the uh, the infantry uh, brigade there to train up. At the time, we were still in the canal zone. This was the U.S. canal zone, which uh, was uh, put in existence in 1903, and uh, it included uh, the canal plus five miles uh, on either side of the canal. About 60,000 Americans there. Uh, they had their own post office, their own police force, their own government. Um, but in 1977, there was people, their third generation, some even fourth generation coming up. And now, uh, as I show up there, where the canal treaties are in play. And they, uh, the general feeling in the U.S. was that the canal was belongs to the U.S., a U.S. national strategic asset. Uh, but at the time, uh, we were getting a lot of heat from these different uh, insurgent groups that were growing up around Latin America. Panama itself, Omar Torrijos, their leader, said this canal was a dagger stuck in the heart of Panama. And, I, and uh, Castro was trying to foment uh, revolutions in different countries from Colombia to Nicaragua and stuff. And, and so I think that uh, Jimmy Carter's strategy was let's turn this canal back over to Panama and maybe that'll take a little bit of the wind out of the sails. And uh, uh, it, it did. And so uh, we were there during this uh, treaty negotiation process. We would practice uh, civil disturbance uh, exercises as the infantry unit and counter guerrilla exercises because uh, Torrio said that if the U.S. doesn't vote this canal over to us, we're going to go in and take it. And so the 193rd Brigade uh, focused on different uh, contingencies. And uh, we, um, we had the jungle school, of course, over in Panama, where units would rotate uh, into Fort Sherman to uh, do a three-week course, 101st Airborne, 82nd, the Ranger Battalions. 
And then the final week uh, of that, they do a uh, counter guerrilla exercise and they would tag uh, our 193 Brigade to be the aggressors. So we had a lot of time practicing being like the guerrilla force working against the conventional force. And um, the rest of the army at that time had, uh, this is seven, uh, three years after Saigon fell. So the rest of the army uh, had put Vietnam behind and they're now focusing on the Middle East, full to gap. But in Panama, we were still locked in that moment where we were uh, turning over a lot of the lessons learned from Vietnam. And I, I was a beneficiary of that as a second lieutenant. Our company commander was Rudy Jones. Uh, he was a, 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 you know, a career 7th Special Forces Group guy, and he was coming over to 4th of the 10th to get his company command time. And a uh, Vietnam veteran, he would be able and, – and he just came out of Dahlonega, uh, Georgia, as the um, – lane walker there and so uh when he took over as our company everything was kind of like a uh, a ranger school without a graduation date and uh, on monday morning we would pull our <laughs> weapons out of the uh arms room we would go into the jungle for four days come in friday morning clean up the weapons and then do that uh four weeks uh, a month and so at the end of the month we had 20 days out there in the jungle doing these different counter guerrilla or guerrilla warfare things under the tutelage let's say of uh, rudy jones and i think that was a great background experience to have to understand that concept and because uh, as a time uh, that set the stage for the next 46 years for me to have that kind of experience I think your first tour as an officer is always an important one. You get a guy that goes to Germany for his first tour, and 50 years later, he still has those uh, beer steins up on his fireplace. He still goes to Oktoberfest. The guy that went to Korea on his first tour, he's studied Taekwondo. He's uh, watching, uh, you know, the uh, different... Uh, uh, martial arts uh, movies and stuff like that. So your, your first tour really kind of is a benchmark for you for the rest of your career. And so I, that would be a, uh, some advice uh, to be careful what your, what your first tour is going to be. Uh, and then uh, I, I was, of course, an easy sell to go to special forces. Uh, I, uh, when I left there, it's a two-year tour. I went to Fort Bragg and uh, went to the special forces course in April of, uh, grad, uh, in April of 79, 1979. Uh, there was only uh, three groups at the time. We had 10th group in Fort Devens with a uh, four battalion and uh, bad tolls. And then uh, we had uh, the 7th group with a four battalion in Panama and then the, the two other battalions in Fort Bragg. And then 5th group, uh, the three battalions were also at Fort Bragg. And we we're all there at the Smoke Bomb Hill, you know, where the wooden buildings are that uh, were. Yeah. And... Um, you know, each wooden building would hold one company. So the, the bottom floor of that company would be like the supply room and the storage area. And then the second floor would be all 16 rooms with the uh, B team. And so, uh, and, and your team rooms were about the size of, uh, you know, a closet type thing. You just had enough room for your metal wall locker, maybe put your rucksack on top of that wall locker, one desk in there uh, and a typewriter. Maybe there was one guy in the team that could use the uh, typewriter. <laughs> and it wasn't hard to get a company meeting. You just yell down the hall and everybody stick their head out and you put the information out and you can move on with, uh, with yourself. And, and, and then there, there was no reason to hang out in your team room because it was very much like being in a telephone booth. So a lot of guys would you know, do what they had to do and then go out to, to do the training. We weren't well resourced. So a lot of the training was um, 
getting National Guard aircraft. Uh, Harley Davis was our uh, Lieutenant Colonel Harley Davis at the time was our battalion commander. He flew us out to Puerto Rico and we went up to Toro Negro for a month. Sea rations, three dollars and fifty cents a day for incidentals, and then uh, we come back from there. And he took us out to the Mojave Desert and dropped us in there for a month. Same thing. Uh, we were creative uh, on a low budget. We were able to do some good training. Uh, the um, the third battalion, fifth group, was dedicated to Cuba. That was our focus area. And so uh, we had a repository of Spanish speakers there. Um, and we uh, each we divided Cuba up between the teams. I had the Isla de Pinos, and we um, had uh, all the maps and the paperwork and uh, books, uh, reference materials, and we stored them in the AST building, which was a big barn-like building there in the Snowbound Hill area. Obviously, at this time, there's no disks or USB drives or stuff like that, so everything is paper copies. <laughs> And every 90 days, we would have to brief our uh, group commander or battalion commander on this is what we're going to do. This is what our area looks like. This would be our E&E plan. These are the uh, optimal drop zones. Well, of course, we never went to Cuba. But uh, when the Cuban refugee uh, flotilla came from Mariel, uh, Cuba in 1980, uh, I went with uh, 12, 11 guys to uh, Fort Chaffee, Arkansas. There was 120,000 Cubans that came in. And they sent them to uh, Indian Town Gap, Fort McCoy, uh, all these names that I'm hearing on the uh, on the news these last couple of days. And uh, I went to Fort Chaffee, uh, and Fort Chaffee was uh, also had uh, it was a, in World War II it was a former German POW camp, but they had uh, buildings, uh, wooden uh, World War II style barracks. We put 20,000 guys in and we divided that area up into four areas and they put three SF guys in each area. So it was a total embed, language embed, language uh, Cuban Spanish. And um, that um, that was our experience. Um, I was on the, uh, the green light team. I was on the Halo uh, Satan team there. And so that was some good training. But uh, I kept looking for that mission. You know, here I was, a Green Bay, a Green Bay captain, and uh, I, I was supposed to be doing adventurous things. And I kept reading the paper and looking for that moment. You know, because I would I would have to go to the uh, team room and listen to the Vietnam War stories from Richmond Nail. He was there, and Johnny sent. Oh yeah. These guys. Uh, and I said, I've got to be that. I'm supposed to be that. When is my time coming? And then. Um, we had some guys filter down to Panama. We had the Spanish speakers in Panama. Uh, when uh, President Reagan took over, he had seen Nicaragua fall. And he said, we don't want that to happen again. And uh, Salvador was the next one that looked like it was in uh, danger. So he started launching uh, training teams there from 3rd of the 7th in Panama. And Juan Gonzalez, he had, was in third of the fifth with us on the scuba team. He had, had gone down to Panama and he come back on leave and he started telling us, hey, this is what's going on there. And I said, that's that's where I have to be. I've got to go there. And so I got on the phone with DEA and uh, I said, I got to go uh, back to Panama. And they said, well, you've already been to Panama. Panama's a backwater. Uh, you, that's not what's happening now. He said, uh, and you can't go to SF. You know, before it wasn't a branch yet. We were all infantry officers. And, you know, back to back SF tour is going to be suicide. You've already done a pretty good job destroying your career already. <laughs> he goes, I'm not going to send you back to Panama. I said, I'm going to send you to Fort Jackson to be a basic infantry company commander there. 
And so I thought, oh, gosh, you know, the war is going to be over before I could ever get back there. And uh, but two weeks later, the guy called me back and he said, I, uh, uh, the uh, assignments officer, and he said, I can't get an infantry guy to go to the Air Defense Artillery Advance Course in El Paso. Can you help me and, and, and be the infantry rep in El Paso? And I said, well, you think I could get my assignment of choice after that? And he goes, well, what do you got in mind? I said, I'd like to go to <laughs> <laughs> I like to the 7th in Panama. I said, that's a good, he said, that's a good idea. He said, we can do that. And then after you're done there, we'll, we'll get you your infantry company commander. So that was my ticket to get to, back to Panama, to get in the fight, to, to get to El Salvador and, and, um, and, and be that advisor there. That was the sort of thing that all the SF training and all the SF guys that we know would like to be there. That's uh, uh and so, uh, but El Paso turned out to be a pretty good uh, trip because it's right across the river from Juarez. So I was able to work the Spanish thing and I watched Spanish TV all day to uh, perfect uh, my Spanish. Uh, and then I show up in, uh, in Panama in September of 82. And the, when I got there, um, a lot of the guys from 3rd Battalion, 5th Group had beat me there. Because they were uh, because there were so many missions popping up in Honduras and in um, El Salvador. They put the battalion at 130% strength, and all the Spanish speakers, as I mentioned, were from 3rd to the 5th. And 5th Group at that time was in that uh, moment uh, where they were looking at redeploying them either to El Paso or Fort Campbell. In the end, Fort Campbell won, and they were mm -hmm. starting to farm guys into Arabic school. And so guys had to make a decision. Do I stay with that fifth group flash? Because some guys, you know, they had gone back many years with that fifth group flash, and that was part of their identity. Or do I deploy down with my language and get into the fight here that looks like the next new uh, adventure? And so when I showed up there, uh, there was a lot of guys, uh, Kenny McMullen, um, Gordon Smith, Robert Smith, Chuck Bureau, uh, all these guys had already beat me there. Because uh, I had that detour over in El Paso, and so it was like old home week there. But uh, again, they had like a, uh, the unit was at 130% strength because they they were getting sent everywhere. Uh, when you're a forward deployed unit, you don't need a JCS deployment order. You know, you need the JCS deployment order to uh, remove CONUS forces to a OCONUS location. But if you're already OCONUS the sink can call you on the phone and say, "Can you send somebody to look at this problem I got in Honduras tomorrow?" And you're gone. And so that's a much more convenient thing for them to do. And when they started tagging the Bragg units for different missions in Central America, they were the ones that they could look out, you know, a few, six, seven months out ahead, and the units could then get the, their stuff ready to go. But the stuff that would be popping up overnight, those little crisis action things, they would send a third of the seventh. It was, it was very useful to have a forward deployed uh, SF unit there. And um, yeah. of course... You know, Hugh Scruggs was our, our, our commander. He had been there for, for many years, and uh, I, I, re, uh, I had met him there when I signed in. I came up to his office there, and I remember when I went to the office there, I saw that Hall of Heroes, you know, the previous battalion commanders, and the first one, uh, you know, being Bull Simons, you know. Uh, it, it was still the eighth group then in 1962, and, yeah. you know, he was the, uh, the guy that was the Sante guy in 1970. He led uh, a mission as Cabuno, a guy uh, to. Uh, he did the, the raid on Cab. I, I'm not going to. In Luzon. Right. In Luzon. Yeah. The, yeah. So they freed the 500 guys, and maybe yeah. uh, a lot of them were from the Baton Death March that he was at, right? It was World mm -hmm. War II. 
And then uh, even as a retired guy in 1978, he did that mission for Ross Perot. And then you go down the line and you, uh, we saw Bo Greitz. Uh, he was the battalion commander down there. I never met Bo Greitz, but I met all the guys that worked for him, like Scruggs and Jones and Remo Butler and uh, <laughs> all these guys. Oh, Remo, yeah. Bo Greitz stories. But, you know, General Westmoreland gave him that mission to go and find the downed uh, spy aircraft in Cambodia, which he was successful in doing. It was highlighted in Robin Moore's book, The Green Berets. Uh, but he kind of set the tone. All of those guys that were his team leaders and uh, company commanders, they went on to become general officers and stuff like that. Now, I think he retired as a lieutenant colonel, but he had probably 20 officer, general officer letters of reprimand in his uh, desk drawer because <laughs> he would do stuff that would really – he really knew how to uh, 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 get the men's uh, attention. Like, uh, for example um, – uh, you know, Doug Days was telling me he just arrived in uh, in Panama and he's uh, on his way out to his first jump, night jump into Lake Gatun, uh sixth jump. And he's sitting there waiting, you know, waiting. And all of a sudden, Bo Greitz in the middle of the thing comes with him and says, Days, get in the door. You're the jump master. <laughs> <laughs> and so Doug says he goes in there, he kind of raises his hands around, and uh, nobody died. And uh, But he always remembered that with Greitz, you have to have your, your head in the game. And then uh, Chris St. John told me about this time they, they were in PT formation, you know, with their shorts and their T-shirts on and everything and a helicopter there with the blades turning. And he uh, sent the guys over, a team over to the Hilo and the Hilo flew into the interior of Panama and dropped the guys off one by one. And they would have to come back on their own uh, using their own devices, no money, no uh, wallet or anything. And um, that really got their attention on the importance of language training. And then, uh, the, uh, the best one, I think, was uh, uh, an NCO, uh, McMullen. He told me that uh, they had put him in isolation in Panama, and they said, you're going to jump into the Sierra Maestra in Cuba. And uh, they did all the briefings, and they gave him live ammunition and everything. They got in the C-130, and they jumped out over, and they landed in there. And they were trying to link up with the partisans there in the Sierra Maestra in Cuba. You know, they didn't know. They had to do their wills, and they didn't know if they were going to come back. And when they link up with a partisan, it's company sergeant major. They're not in Cuba. They're in Toro Negro, uh, Puerto Rico. <laughs> <laughs> they were pissed at first, but they said, you know, that was the best training we ever had. And so this was the kind of spirit that was inculcated, I think. It was a very key, key moment there. Now, um, Roger Donlan took uh, uh, Bo Greitz's uh, Slaughter is a hard act to follow, but Roger uh, Donlan was a hero in his own right. You know, he was the uh, first Medal of Honor winner, and uh, and then uh, after him was Chuck Fry, and so and now we have uh, Hugh Scruggs, uh, and uh, he's he's the group commander. And, and so when I go in there, he said, "No, we can't send you right away to El Salvador," which is what I anticipated going, because he says uh, we are we're limited to fifty five people there, and I got to make sure I pick and choose uh, the uh, you know proven commodities. He goes, "Right now, the emphasis is taking the Salvadoran army, which was a ten thousand man ceremonial army, and and and, and building them up to a fifty four thousand man." Um, uh, formidable counterinsurgency force and the guys that I need now are guys that might have Vietnam experience or guys that have NCOs that have a training uh, experience in, in, in equipping these uh, raw recruits into uh, these uh, Cazador and uh, Beery battalions 
And he said, there's plenty of other missions here. And, you know, if you prove yourself, you know, we might be able to uh, look at you going here in a year's time. So, okay, game on. I'm going to go ahead and, you know, attack all of these different missions he might give me. Uh, we ended up getting into the 55-man limit problem because um, when we started sending trainers there under uh, Ronald Reagan, there was some consternation in Congress that we could be going down the slippery slope. It's only five years after Vietnam. And they said, well, how many guys are you going to send there? You had 20 last month. Now you got 30. Now you got how many you got down there? And, and uh, they reported back, well, we have 55. Okay, let's keep it at 55. Okay, let's do that. And that um, hamstrung us, but it was they did a big favor for the Salvadoran Army because there's no way that 55 guys are going to win the war. Uh, had they not put those uh, ceiling on us, we could have likely sent the 101st down there, the 82nd. We could have just shoved the Salvadorans aside. But now you can't because now you've got 55. And how are we going to design these 55 guys to have the best impact? Now, you still have to take this 10,000-man, largely ceremonial army and train them into a fighting force. How do you do that? So we came up with uh, the CRIM, the Centro de Regional de Entrenamiento Militar, uh, the regional military training center, which was built. Uh, wooden uh, sea huts uh, were established up on the Caribbean coast of Honduras. Um Honduras and El Salvador, they're part of the five Central American republics, but Honduras and El Salvador have had, um, you know, a love-hate relationship because uh, their border <laughs> was not really well marked on the 160-mile uh, the border that they shared. And so the Hondurans were, uh, they were threatened by Nicaragua. Nicaragua, uh, the Sandinistas had just taken over in September of 79, and the uh, Soviets and Cubans had built their army up to 50,000. Uh, providing uh, main battle tanks and uh, other uh, wheeled uh, armored vehicles. And um, this Honduran forces only had 15,000. So they, they were willing to kind of cooperate with us uh, with the understanding that for every Salvadoran battalion we could train in uh, the Krem in, in Honduras, we would also train a Honduran battalion so they could keep that sort of parity thing going. So the, that mission was tagged to the 7th Group at Fort Bragg, and they carried that uh, mission for 10 years, uh, turning out uh, unit after unit. And you could see the huge difference when these units came back after having that training, that off-site training in Honduras, and they came back into the war, it made a big difference. Because in El Salvador at the time, if you had men, uh, they were manning the perimeter because tonight could be the night there's going to be an attack. So do we let the guys sit there and do some FTX or some range training thing when we have an ambush here on the Panamericana? And so they, they would constantly abort training. But when you could send the men up to uh, Krim, up to Honduras, they were in an isolated area and they went through the full package deal. Uh, the other thing we had was the School of Americas in Panama that started in 1948 and was there all the way through 84. So when I, when I got there in 82, the School of Americas was still there uh, as part of the Can Panama Canal Treaty drawdown. Um, the, the school would eventually be relocated to Fort Benning. But at the time, uh, the School of Americas was running a full curriculum there. And so they designed it to uh, bring in more Salvadorans uh, from uh, commando courses, recon courses and stuff like that. And so uh, 
the sort of seven teams that were in Panama, they got tagged to run an eight week uh, Recondo course, eight week, uh, you know, long range reconnaissance courses. And I got uh, tagged for two of those. I got tagged uh, with my team. I was on ODA eight. They use a single uh, letter numbering system back then in Panama, ODAs one through 16. And uh, my team uh, was given the mission to train the uh, Salvadoran recon elements, uh, two of them. One was the Naval Special Commando Unit, and then we did another three-month exercise. And, and that was very valuable to learn Salvadoran Spanish or how they would respond so that when I finally did get to El Salvador in um, October of 83, I had a pretty good feel for what that uh, basic building block was going to be like. And, and, and I think that, um, you know, uh, Hugh Scruggs showed a lot of wisdom by giving people a chance to kind of get their uh, feet wet with these different sort of off-site training things before he launched them into the uh, Super Bowl there in El Salvador. Um, we also had uh, the Salvadoran Military Academy. Uh, they were normally cranking out 15 graduates a year, the cadets. But this war, uh, you know, when the army is growing from 10,000 to 54,000, what do you need? You need platoon leaders. And they, you know, cranking out 16 second lieutenants a year is not going to cut it. So uh, the Fort Benning guys, uh, they opened up the um, the School of Americas. Uh, I mean, the uh, Officers Candidate School in Spanish. Uh, and so they would send these uh, first year cadets up to a six month uh, carbon copy version of OCS. And they would come back. And as a second year cadet, he's now a platoon leader taking the men out on uh, the ambush patrols and small unit operations. And they were doing about 150 to 180 graduates a year. And that was uh, that was helpful. Uh, we also um, had the. Um, Immediate Reaction Battalion, Bayoso. Uh, Salvador created thir uh, six 1,300-man large uh, mobile forces uh, called Biris, Battalion de Infanteria de Reacción Inmediata. And uh, the second one was Bayoso Battalion that was sent up to Camp McCall. And now Rudy Jones is a major, and he's the S3 of the battalion. Uh, and he uh, sets up that training program, and that was six months long. And when they came back, uh, the guerrillas had several huge defeats back to back to back. And so they, they would not even want to get in the same, uh, you know, department as the Bayo. So if the Bayo was in this department, they would cross the river just to avoid contact. Because at, at that time, uh, you know, the guerrillas uh, in the early days, uh, they were these highly motivated uni university students, 12,000, 15,000 strong, probably ages of uh, 20 to 28 and then our army, on the other hand, might have been, uh, you know, the younger on the younger side, 18 years old, uh, not really understanding why I'm here, you know, maybe drafted conscript army. And uh, the uh, so when the Beosa shows back up, uh, you could really see that, that that significant difference. And that was the one more day to skin the cat, the cat being how do you train a 10,000 man army if you can only have 55 guys in country? So the 55 guys in country mainly came from 3rd of the 7th in Panama, and um, they um, put uh, three guys uh, in each of the six military zones. There's 14 political departments in El Salvador, and so they put three guys. Um, it, it was a major uh, warrant and a uh, NCO normally. Uh, the warrant program now is starting to kick in. Uh, up to this time, we had... Uh, up to about 1984, we still have first lieutenants as XOs of the teams, but uh, now we have the warrant that 
more than likely went to uh, 18 foxtrot training and stuff like that somewhere in his life. And so uh, when they broke down the duties of the team, they would have uh, the NCO focusing on uh, training and the civil defense. I'll talk about that in a second. And then the uh, warrant officer would be working with the intel sections, the fusion centers, and then with maybe PSYOPs would be his other uh, area. And then the officer would be uh, maybe looking at operations, current operations, future operations, and advising the different uh, commanders that were in that military zone. Again, there's 14 departments, and they divided them up into six military zones. And so each of the military zones has a three-man uh, team like that. And then uh, we had another split team, six guys that were in La Union, where we had the National Training Center, the CEMFA, Centro uh, the Entrenamiento Militar Forces Armadas. And um, this this team uh, is there uh, running basic training courses, then uh, corporal uh, promotion courses, maybe some other uh, recondo type stuff. And that took the heat off of a lot of the departments that had, up to now were doing their localized training. Uh, they could then export their men over there. They would get trained and then they would come back with standardized training. Uh, so my, my first tour there was uh, in 83 to 84. Uh, I was actually on two back-to-back TDYs from 3rd to the 7th as the OD-88 commander. Now, at the time I was there, there was three commanders of ODA 8 One was in Honduras, <laughs> uh, one was in El Salvador, and one was, I think, in Ecuador. And so we, did, we didn't even have a, an ODA, even though there was three guys up on the board. Uh, we were in three different countries. Uh, that's just the way it, uh, the... the the storm was uh, mounting there, uh, uh, a lot of great opportunities for guys. And so 3rd uh, of the 7th became a magnet for guys that wanted to deploy. It was a self-filtering system. So the guys would hear the stories about what the guys were doing. So you get this certain type of guy that was feeling bad if he was not deployed, if he was walking around in the PX parking lot in Fort Gulick, he wouldn't feel good about himself until he got on the plane. That was the type of guy we were getting. And so it was, it was a good, uh, good time to be there. And uh, so um, I, um, I ended up doing my year there uh, as the advisor. Uh, was a, they, that's when they started the civil defense program. Uh, that was uh, an important component of, the, of uh, a uh, counterinsurgency. Um, Bruce Hazelwood, uh, famous Bruce Hazelwood. Uh, oh, yeah. He, he came out to San Vicente, that's where I was, and, and that's where he came to set up the, uh, the civil defense program. And that was kind of a pivotal experience because I, I just watched him kind of in action, how he set up the civil defense program, how he conducted training. And uh, I realized that uh, all these years I was doing it wrong. And, and from there, forth, <laughs> I was able to kind of get the uh, the right way of approaching things and stuff like that. So it was kind of like a living laboratory for me to watch him, how he set that up. And, and basically the idea uh, on his particular civil defense program was that uh, each of the municipalities, uh, each department has uh, 20 municipalities and each municipality has a, a, a cabicero, a town uh, mayor uh, town, a uh, principal town. And uh, the civil defense force would have 50 weapons assigned to it. And you would try to recruit 500 men from the municipality so that every 10 days you would do one day uh, of duty. So three nights a, a month you're doing. 
and you get some basic training, uh, you know, fire and movement, uh, range training, uh, patrolling training. They're basically guarding the town square, which has the mayor's office, the church, the uh, uh, other uh, administrative buildings. And then you go out to the perimeter. Nothing uh, spectacular, nothing fancy, pretty simple stuff. They were armed initially with the M1 carbines from the Korean War. And then uh, they had a trouble getting magazines for them, so they switched to the M14 by the end of the war. The M14 was what they were, were handling. But this really bothered the guerrillas because uh, heretofore the guerrillas could come into town without any opposition to buy a Coca-Cola or to go to the pharmacy to get medical supplies or go to the hardware store and buy a bag of nails to create a, a roadside bomb. But now they can't do it because these guys are preventing them from doing it. But more than that, uh, the guerrillas can live with a passive population, but they can't live with people that now are taking a step against them because their narrative is we are fighting for you, we are fighting for the people. But now they have these 500 guys that have said the opposite. And these 500 guys have uh, daughters and mothers and uh, wives and stuff like this. And they're now the eyes and ears because they know that their uncle is uh, on the civil defense force. And they see a, a guerrilla unit walking across the uh, open field there, and they're going to report that. Because these guys are not just recruited from the town, they're recruited from a 20-kilometer radius around the town. So now you have uh, a situation that the guerrillas didn't like very much, and so they would attack these different things and try to take this program down. And, and granted, the area where the guerrillas were most uh, predominant, uh, predominant were the areas it was harder to recruit and uh, on the areas where the uh, guerrillas like on the west side of the country it was easy to recruit guys because and, and why not it was kind of like a uh, you know a club uh, atmosphere you go out to shoot at the range and low risk situation and they would have thousands and thousands of guys come to be recruited but then when you go to northern morazon or something uh, that would be a suicidal mission to say hey i want to be in the, in the civil defense area but the areas that we were focusing on were those conflictive areas, the areas that were uh, being uh, contested uh, with the FARC and stuff like that. But that was a, a Bruce Hazelwood project that ended up uh, working uh, really well uh, because it gave the small Salvadoran army at 54,000 another group of people that could hold down static positions in town so that that would free them up to go out and do patrolling and actual offensive operations against the guerrillas. Uh, one of the guerrilla strategies was to do economic sabotage, to blow up all the bridges, the power lines, and uh, that uh, they were doing like about uh, $300 million a year of uh, sabotage. And that would be $300 million less that the Salvadoran government could use to improve the uh, uh, lives of the uh, townsfolk uh, by building wells or schools or something. They had, to, they had to rededicate this money just to rebuild the same bridge that was there the day before. So having the civil defense guys there helped hold down the, uh, the package a little bit. And um, so when, when I did my tour there, I said, I've got to get back. Um, and um, I said, what's the quickest way back? I'll go to Korea because I was still in the uh, infantry. And you have to check that block to get the infantry, the company command, or else you're, you're dead in the water. And I said, hey, the safest place to go is Korea because, you know, their one-year tour, there's guidons falling off all over the place. But I got the Korea. They <laughs> said, uh, <laughs> they told me, that, no, we don't do it that way. You're going to have to do one year as a, uh, a guy in the G3 here. 
And then after that, if you prove yourself in the G3, we'll give you that company command. So I did a two-year uh, hiatus there in uh, Korea where my dad had served in uh, following the Incheon uh, invasion. So I was able to explain oh, wow. uh, that. You know, I was able to discuss uh, that uh, with my dad, his, his time in a, in a more uh, uh, detailed manner, uh, walking some mm-hmm. ground that he had walked. And then uh, I came back uh, because when you go to Korea, you can get your assignment, your first assignment of choice anyway. So I said, well, I want to go to El Salvador, San Miguel. And so I came back again uh, this time for a year and a half. And I could see the difference because the, the SF training that had come in there, the, uh, we now had an NCO Corps, these cadets that were just coming out of the uh, IOBC or uh, the uh, officers, uh, OCS, uh, they were now uh, seasoned uh, platoon leaders. We had gone from zero to 50 helicopters. And the helicopter was a huge difference. They were Hueys with an M60 mm-hmm. door gun. But up to that time, the gorillas were allowed to walk in groups of 400 uh, in, at noon, you know, in the open fields, you know, from one area to another. Who's going to stop them? But as soon as you put that first Huey up with the M60 Delta in there, it, it's a game changer because you have the high ground always with the helicopter. And then they brought in the Mike model, uh, which were the Hueys with the 2.75 rocket pods on each side. And then they created the uh, DC-3, the C-47 Fantasma. And then, of course, they had their complement of A-37s that uh, were out there as well. But the helicopter really made a huge difference because Salvador is not a big country. It's, uh, you know, 300 uh, kilometers uh, wide and about 160 kilometers high. And so you can fly from here to there. Uh, it's mountainous, so there's some good places where the gorillas are going to be able to hang out without you be able to get getting to them. And... Um, but uh, that, that air thing really made a big difference in, um, in getting support to units that were attacked or evacuating guys, medical evacuations. Uh, when I first, my first tour there in 83, we had 10 casualties a day, friendly forces did. And uh, almost all of them for enfrentamientos, uh, encounters with um, gunfire. But then my second tour there was also 10 casualties a day, but eight of them were due to mines and booby traps. The mines and booby traps, while I was in Korea, they came out with the mines and booby traps. And uh, there's very predictable places to land those helicopters and uh, very uh, easy ways to shut down these different traditional trails that the uh, government forces would walk down. And so uh, eight out of 10 guys uh, in that last part of the war were uh, suffering from mines and booby trap uh, injuries. And the gorillas were able to perfect uh, the quantity of the explosives that they put in each uh, of these uh, uh, toe popper type uh, devices that they made, all homemade devices. None of them were commercial uh, fabricated uh, devices. They were all homemade. And uh, just enough explosives to shatter the guy's foot without killing him because now they know they have to do an extensive amputation and they don't have a veterans administration program there. And the only way to keep paying this guy is to keep him on the rolls. So in the, in, in the San Miguel where I was there with 3000 men, there was uh, 500 that were on one leg or less that were, uh, you know, battalions worth of people that were taken out of the field. By the time I mm. left there in 1988, and uh, DM4, they had 2,400 men assigned and all, uh, in Morazan, but um, they also had 500 guys on one leg or less. So you would see on payday, you know, when they could come in to get their pay, the guys would come in on 
you know, crutches and wheelchairs and stuff like that. And uh, I remember General McCaffrey was there. And he goes, hey, uh, this is not good. He goes, look at this unit going out to an operation there watching these guys come in. And the colonel said, no, because this is good because the men will know that we're not going to abandon them, that uh, no matter what happens to them out there, we're going to still uh, stick with them. We're going to keep them paid, make sure their families are okay and stuff like that. Um, and uh, when I left there, uh, I, that's when I ended up doing my master's thesis on was countermine operations in El Salvador because I said there's got to be a solution to this. And so when I went to Fort Leavenworth, I dove in and I said, let me see if I can come up with something out there. And, you know, Leavenworth got a vast library and uh, most of the stuff that was valuable was from Vietnam, you know, the later wars of the Vietnam uh, conflict, that was a, their main problem as well, uh, the same types of booby traps and stuff. And so I tried to see what I could do to, to uh, turn that around. And where I was uh, in San Miguel, let, let me Let me in, interrupt for just a second. I wanted to ask you something. Did you notice a difference in the level of training for the FMLN between your first deployment and their second one? Yeah, I think what you ended up with, they didn't have a deep bench. Uh, you know, they had some very um, ideologically uh, motivated, uh, uh, you know, the universitario type guys at the beginning. And then they start taking casualties. But then there isn't another universitario guy to take their place. So now they're doing stuff like uh, pulling kids out of the houses, you know, 12-year-olds and saying, carry this mortar base plate for me for two weeks. Uh, and then towards the, um, towards the end of the war, um, we start seeing maybe up to 30% females now because they're, they're ready to put anybody into the ranks. And we start seeing uh, 12, 13 year old stuff like that. And um, the, that's what brought them to the peace table uh, because they were looking at the uh, road ahead and they said this is not the arc uh, was not going in their favor so they went to the uh, the peace table that's, that's essentially what happened because uh, they could uh, they could see uh, and and their their campaign to do the mines and booby traps was very effective hugely effective but salvador being the most densely populated country in the um, Western Hemisphere, albeit a rural country, you also have civilians walking around, the old lady, the little kid that's also stepping on that mine. And so they might, the FMLN may have had some popularity in uh, Europe uh, and in Mexico. Mexico had recognized the FMLN as a belligerent force, as did France. But now there's this uh, big um, uh, turnabout in uh, this effective tool that they were using against the military now uh, has a negative effect on their, their international support uh, because we weren't using mines or book chests. We had claymores. That was all, only claymores. And, and so any of those sorts of activities was clearly on, on their shoulder. They couldn't say, well, that was a military booby trap or something. Uh, uh, and so... Uh, that's what I saw towards the end that the um, they were uh, desperate to fill the ranks up. Uh, there were some hardcore uh, guerrillas there. They were out there for three, four days at a time, eating two or three tortillas. Uh, they were always on the run now. The intel was getting better so that uh, they could not uh, feel comfortable in a place for a long uh, period of time. Uh, 
that was another yeah, thing. Yeah, and as you were saying, yeah, it's just such a small country. It's, you know, as granted, it was mountainous and thickly vegetated, but still, it's a small country with the military getting better by the day. That, yeah. It put a, put a damper on their ops. Yeah, it did. And, um, the, like I say, the, there was no NCO Corps when I first got there. It would be a single cadet that might wear a bright colored scarf and say, you hundred guys follow me. And they would. But then as we got down, uh, just that short tour I took in Korea, when I came back, I saw that the seventh group guys had created this uh, nice SF, uh, this nice uh, NCO Corps that was doing that um, sort of small uh, leadership, small unit leadership uh, it was needed to win this thing. So, um, yeah, right after, right after your last tour, that's when everything started heating up in Panama. Well, before that, we had this other thing that happened to us in 1986, and that was the um, drug situation in the Indian Ridge, yeah. uh, Bolivia, Peru, Colombia, and uh, so simultaneous with this. Central American thing that we were doing from 1981 to 1986. Now all of a sudden they hand us this situation. Now Colin Powell at the time said, I don't want our guys to be the lead, but we will support the State Department with training. And so that's what we did. And, and each of these countries in Bolivia, uh, Peru, Ecuador, uh, Venezuela, uh, Colombia, they needed uh, to have a special uh, counter narcotic force that would be air mobile because of the vast distances that would understand uh, small unit uh, act tactics because the uh, narco traffickers would often be guerrilla forces like the Sinchis in Peru or the FARC or the ELN in Colombia, or they just might be well armed. So the types of skill sets uh, that they needed to, this police forces needed to be trained in do not sit with the Philadelphia police force, but with seven special forces group. And so the POIs that we had, were fairly uh, consistent with what we were doing in the Krem in Honduras and in uh, these uh, Salvadoran missions. So we had guys that uh, were really up in their game with uh, language and uh, running these training programs, and they were then uh, spun off to go to Bolivia to set up the uh, GARAS training program. That was uh, Captain Charlie Cleveland was the first one there. Yeah. And, Almost everybody from 7th Group had been there once in their life uh, by now. And then uh, we talk about Bob Clausen going down with Mike Coote uh, to do the assessment of the Colombian narcotics police, which later became the Junglas. They stayed behind to work with the British SAS. The British SAS ran the first iteration of the Colombian Jungla course in 1989. I was able to go to the 30th anniversary of the Hunglas in Bogota in 19, uh, oh, wow. 2019. <laughs> and the, SA, the SAS guys, the three SAS guys were there, and they all talked about uh, Bob Clausen and Mike Coote 30 years later, <laughs> how they had helped them, because they were excellent Spanish, because, as you know, Mike and Bob were uh, were, were uh, very familiar with Latin America, and the SAS guys were just showing up for the first time into the region. And they provided them a lot of great help out there to put that together. Um, and Bob then we had the, um, yeah, yeah. And then we had the, uh, <laughs> uh, the Sinchis in the Wayaga Valley in Peru. 
and uh, we sent Blue Venture down there. Um, the Senchis were established by Seventh Fruit back in the 1960s, but then um, we rejoined them again in 1989 with uh, Captain Ben Sikalik and uh, Mastar and went out there, and they were followed by Ed Reeder, Dan Tomlinson went out there. Um, and uh, they were uh, a key unit to help uh, the DEA, uh, you know, take down these uh, drug labs that they would identify. And so now we've got these things going on. And then, in, in um, as you mentioned, on top of all that, in 1989, now we've got the Noriega situation. Uh, this is our home base, uh, Panama, and uh, he's uh, creating uh, consternation. Why we're uh, deployed. When I took command, when I got out of Leavenworth, I took command of Alpha 37, our company. And uh, there was only two guys standing in formation uh, Sergeant uh, Deck, the uh, N- and Sergeant Deck were the only two guys there because everyone else was in El Salvador, Ecuador, Colombia. Everyone was deployed. And uh, when I, the first thing I did after I took command in July of 89 was to go out and visit them as many as I could. And they were all coming back uh, in December of 89 to uh, then do a handoff. Uh, the other company was B Company, Bruce Yost's company, and they were the ones that were focusing on training up for the event, the, the, the potential uh, just cause invasion. And so from July to uh, December, they did a couple of short, like three-week trips to Costa Rica, three-week trip to uh, uh, Guatemala or something. But uh, their main focus was uh, to train up the different missions. We had like 20 different uh, scenarios that we were training for, primarily to uh, prevent Noriega from escaping, different airfields that he might have escaped from. We would send his teams there to kind of put eyes on those areas. And Bruce Yost and his teams were training up that. And then I was supposed to take over Bruce in, uh, uh, the, you know, December 19th was our handoff or something. <laughs> but that turned out to be when they lit the fuse for Just Cause. So uh, Bruce's guys are already farming out to Bolivia. Ed Reeder's getting on a plane to go to Peru. And um, meanwhile, my guys are get coming, uh, Alpha 37s coming off the planes. But by this time, we've already set up in the hangar at Albrook, ready to start launching out the H-hour missions. And so when guys were landing in uh, Howard Air Force Base to thinking they're going on Christmas vacation or something after their six-month tour in Bolivia, I would tell Stan Brown, I said, you, you can't go to the Fort <laughs> Davis right now. you got to come to this hangar, and I'll let you know what's going on. So he shows up at the hangar, and I said, okay, in six hours, the Panama invasion is going to start. <laughs> and so... Uh, we, uh, you know, we had guys who were well trained to do the Panama invasion, but a lot of them were on already down on the ground in Bolivia, and they had, uh, you know, were back. Uh, they had done their changeover, and, but luckily, all that training that the guys were doing in uh, downrange turned out to help us throughout the invasion because everybody's Spanish is on on par. Uh, for example, when we did a couple of our HR missions, the one on the Pecora Bridge, for example, I had Mitch Williamson with me, and he was the guy that trained the 203 gunners at the Sinchis for six months. And so I said, Mitch, I said, uh, can you lay 203 fire along this riverbed? We think guys are in that riverbed. And he said, I can do that. And I knew he could because he had fired thousands and thousands of rounds. And uh, And so we had like this 
this all-star team, albeit we hadn't worked together. You know, some of the guys, I said, you don't know me yet because I didn't get a chance to see you, but I'm your company commander. And in six hours, we're going to get on this Blackhawk and we're going to go here. <laughs> and, uh, but it was a fast learn, you know, as we went out to the countryside and did the different missions and you're there in close quarters, uh, everybody, uh, had that high maturity level and uh, they understood what was going on. I remember when we went out on Christmas day to David and I had chief Quebec with us, with me and JJ Johnson. And they had just come back from El Salvador where they ran their uh, fusion centers, their Intel fusion centers in Sulutan and in um, Chalatenango. And I said, okay, remember what you did in the Sulutan JJ? Do that right now for me and David. Here's the big map here in their conference room that we just took over from the PDF and start plotting things and interviewing people and do everything that you did there. He said, okay, I got it. So you can do that audible at the line of scrimmage because everybody kind of understands what the situation is going to be and what needs to be done. And then when we did our promote liberty following that, we pretty much used the Salvadoran model, you know, where you have a small amount of guys. We had uh, 80 guys in the company and we have to spread them out over these different provinces. And so the guys were doing basically the OPAT mission that we did in El Salvador. But now they're in, uh, in your case, in Chapo, uh, uh, doing the same thing that I was doing in San Vicente in El Salvador, you know, reporting, observing, advising, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, giving uh, the commanders back in the rear the sort of information that you're, you're not going to get from flying a drone overhead or something. You know? Yeah, I remember uh, in Chapo, the, the cops were, um, they were very motivated to please after the war. You know how it is. Because they knew, yeah. you know, we had to cut down a lot of uh, strength there. And then they gave us a, a army reservist who was a... Uh, actually a National Guard guy, SF National Guard guy who was a SWAT team member from St. Petersburg. And he made up Chapo SWAT team T-shirts for all the cops. And then somebody <laughs> saw it and said to General Steele, aren't you guys jumping the gun a little bit with this, you know, Chapo SWAT team? <laughs> but yeah, th well, those were those were fun times. That's when uh, I first met you back then. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then uh, uh, Wade Wade Chapel and I uh, got in at the same time. Yeah, and um, and so it, you know, following uh, that uh, promote liberty operation in Panama, they redeployed Third uh, Italian to Fort Bragg. Uh, as part of the Panama Canal treaties uh, that were signed uh, in October of 79, we had a 20-year period where by the year 2000, we were supposed to uh, have withdrawn and turned over all of these installations, uh, and, which we did. We, we, we complied with that. And as part of that drawdown, uh, they sent the 3rd Battalion back. But luckily, guys like uh, Hugh Scruggs, who is now the 7th Group Commander, and Roy Trumbull, who was our battalion commander, they said, we've got to keep at least a foothold here because uh, during the time that I was a, a captain, Roy Trumbull was there as the A37 commander. He, he was out there deploying to Honduras and, and these different locations, and he saw the value of having the in-country forces there, as did uh, Hugh Scruggs, uh, who he did uh, captain, major, lieutenant colonel time in Panama. And so we were able to keep Charlie 37 there for another 10 years, and then uh, from there, they moved to Puerto Rico to kind of keep that same sort of uh, in-country uh, or that in-theater uh, response thing. 
and um, that was a very good decision because they they had to get launched a few times uh, on a few good missions. Uh, Charlie three seven during the time they were uh, there, uh, the one that we think about is the Peruvian uh, mission uh, where they. Uh, Tupac Amaro took over the Japanese ambassador's residence. We had um, uh, George Franco, a captain with uh, Zeitz, uh, Nestor and Zeitz, uh, Chris uh, Zeitz. They, they had just come from there doing a uh, six-week uh, deployment. And then a week later was this situation in the, in, uh, with the Japanese ambassador's residence there. And the unit that was sent to respond was the unit that they just trained. And so uh, they, they, they turned around and sent... Uh, George back down there and he was able to get access right up onto the target because the guys had their diplomas from Charlie three, seven, the ink hadn't dried on it yet. And so these were their <laughs> friends and they explained everything what was going on. So this sort of thing where we build these mill to mill relationships in order to have the doors open for different things. That was a perfect example of where it would have been hard for just a random guy off the street to come up on the target to ask him what was going on. It wasn't hard for Zeitz or for, uh, Franco to go in there and get that information. So uh, that paid uh, dividends to have the Charlie 3-7 there. Uh, but now we don't have the in-theater forces now. They're all uh, located now in um, Eglin there. But uh, mm -hmm. through the 90s, we continued the uh, the counter-drug thing, they, the, the, Pan the Salvadoran uh, thing. They signed our peace treaty in 92. Uh, and so that kind of quieted things down a little bit in Central America. And so in the 90s, we then put our full focus down in the Andean region and the narcotics thing and kind of culminated in the development of Plan Colombia in 1999 or year 2000. It was signed in July of 2000. And uh, I was now the mill group commander in Colombia when that had happened. And um, then, um, you know, we went ahead and um, uh, over the next uh, 12 years, uh, the 7th group uh, would have four teams in Colombia, uh, two working with the police, two working with uh, the uh, army. This is even after uh, the uh, Iraq invasion, because it wasn't until the Iraq invasion that 7th group got pulled into the mix. Because when we were just in Afghanistan, the 5th group kind of had uh, a nice rotation working. But then when you uh, develop that second uh, operation with uh, Iraq, then it's all hands on deck because this thing looks like it's going to be a long thing. And, and of course, it did turn out to be a long thing. And so everyone has to kind of get into the rotation. And so uh, in around 2003, 7th group only had instead of 18 ODAs to deploy downrange each quarter. They now only have four. And so they they look at the map and say, well, if we're going to have anybody go anywhere, it's got to be Colombia because that's where the more intense activity was taking place. And, and that's where all the U.S. agencies were working. So they DOD wanted to join up with the rest of uh, the State Department and the, um, uh, the DEA, USAID. And so we all worked there together uh, during those years. And... Um, that le that culminated in a peace treaty as well in 216, and uh, it, you know the FARC were were brought you know pretty much to their knees, and so they realized that we're going to have to regroup, much like the Salvadoran guerrillas did in 1992. But Colombia is a vast country, and uh, you had 66 different fronts in the uh, FARC. And uh, each of them are uh, very uh, locally recruited, and uh, you don't have that sort of uh, centralized leadership like the FMLN did when the FMLN said, okay, everybody put your weapons down. Uh, 
that was an easy thing to do. And of course, uh, most people were willing to put their weapons down because they were eating that one tortilla every three days and getting uh, rained on and uh, sleeping under a poncho type thing. But now with the FARC situation, you have this, uh, you know, billion dollars a year sort of uh, industry going on. And then this guy that's been a FARC combatant for 20 years, what's he going to do now? So uh, you might have um, still a lot of conflictive zones going on in Colombia, even though this uh, peace treaty has been signed because Mm -hmm. of that other aspect of the thing. There's a lot more different motivations other than an ideological push to get these guys out there. Um, Central America, I guess to close up, uh, we we had a, a great displacement internally in the Central American countries, but also a lot of them went to the states. And uh, you'd have these uh, Salvadorans that would show up in Los Angeles, and uh, they would get picked on. Uh, they would be these newcomers that would come there, and people would uh, you know assault them on the streets or whatever. But they would get together and form these sorts of defense groups there in Los Angeles uh, to uh, thwart these attempts of other organized gangs, you know, from the 50s and 60s that were harassing them. Uh, But those things kind of uh, spiraled into the MS-13 and the Pandilla de Ocho, the two big gangs that we have now in Central American countries. Uh, Those guys would get um, in trouble in the United States and they'd be deported and they would come back to El Salvador in the 90s and the early aughts here and they would... uh, bring some of the skill sets that they had learned. These self-defense forces in Los Angeles ended up then asking different businesses in the area, hey, could you please contribute money to this gang we have here so that we can protect you? And then it's called extortion. And then maybe they want to supplement their income by selling drugs. That's called drug dealing. And so they become illegal groups. And uh, Salvador Tropio, uh, the, the actual Salvador, hadn't seen anything like this before. So uh, these guys uh, pretty much gave the security forces here a run for their money because they were a couple of steps ahead of them. And so that's a persistent problem that we're, we're dealing with here now, even in 2021. But uh, that was kind of the roots of the, uh, of, of, of the, the gang, the creation of the gangs was they started in the U.S. These guys ended up getting deported. They come here and provide some mobile training team type advice to the guys here who end up uh, becoming even uh, more skilled at it than the original uh, uh, founders. Uh, The main problem that we have is extortion in El Salvador right now, that every business is extorted, uh, whether it's the bakery or the uh, gas station. And they kind of, the gangs uh, are, they divide up the neighborhoods. Each uh, clique, a uh, uh, small group of gangs, they have uh, a 20 by 20 block area they're responsible for. And there might be uh, 30 businesses in that area. And they kind of gauge how much they're going to charge you for this protection money monthly. It could be $50, it could be $250. They kind of do an assessment. They don't want to kill the golden goose. Uh, they want to make sure you still have some money at the end of the month to pay your light bill. Cause if they do uh, too hard of an extortion, the guy's going to close down the business cause he doesn't want to end up working for free. Um, and so you can report yourself to the police, but if they find out they'll uh, kill you or a family member. So that's kind of a dissuasive measure. 
uh, that they use the threat of force. Uh, you do have some safety because that you know that each of these cliques are extorting 30 different palaces. So um, you will, they won't be able to figure out which of these 30 people are ratting us out. So you got some protection there. Once you go to the anti-extortion forces, they're pretty uh, professional here in El Salvador. Uh, they'll set up some over uh, site positions. Uh, they, they don't just want to arrest that kid on the bicycle that's sent to the bakery to pick up the thing. Uh, he's not a key player in this, but they kind of track the kid, see where he goes, and then they wait to maybe they can develop uh, a situation where they can pounce and break the whole structure down. And so when you read in the newspaper that they captured 15 people in this town, that might have been a mission that was six months in the making. But while they're waiting for that six months in the making mission to really hammer them, you as the bakery guy are still paying monthly, you're still losing your money. And you're still wondering, oh, is tonight the night they're going to find out that I was the guy that uh, snitched on them? And so you're feeling very nervous. Uh, once they captured the gang, uh, that used to bust it up. And then maybe you would have a respite for several months or years or forever. But now the gangs are uh, more organized so that when they see the one element that gets captured, they go ahead and backfill uh, so that they don't lose those months of extortion. So now you think you have a respite, you might get a month off, but then the next month they're coming, a new guy, and saying, okay, uh, here I am, I'm the new guy, and now you have to pay me that 250 bucks. And you just went through this harrowing six months wondering if uh, these guys are going to find out. So then you decide, do I go back to the police again? Or do I just pay the light bill, pay the water bill, and pay the gang bill? And so, uh, or do I go to the United States? Do I try to start over there because I'm not going to grow my business because the money that I would have used to fix the roof or hire another worker is now going to the gang. So is it better, am I better going to the States at this point? And so a lot of the people that do show up at our border are saying that I am in danger there in a sense that they would be in danger if they weren't paying that extortion fee. And uh, they're also uh, seeing that their ability to expand is limited. And even though they might have a, a no direct physical threat, uh, they don't want to continue on with this, uh, you know, this uh, carousel, right? Um, so uh, if we can fix that problem, then I think a lot of people will uh, feel content because uh, the pain, uh, you know, that, that was, uh, you know, the Irish potato famine. Uh, we ended up with a big immigration because the pain of staying in Ireland where your family was for 2000 years becomes greater than the pain that you might experience from leaving your grandmother behind. So a lot of people got on the boats because it was either that or they were going to die. So most people are probably content uh, to stay where they're at, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, the other problem we have is the magnet in the United States. Uh, you know, you have a $350 minimum wage a month uh, uh, in El Salvador. And uh, maybe a, a good job is getting uh, that Coca-Cola tr delivery truck job where you're paid 7 bucks a day. And uh, you were fighting to get that job, but then you hear from your cousin in Houston who's making $7 an hour, and then you, f you think to yourself at the end of that hard day in the 100 degree temperature in San Miguel whether it was worth it or whether I should go to Houston. And so 
you have that sort of phenomena, even though you're not being messed with at all by the gangs, you realize that if I do take a risk to go up there, I might be able to improve my, my position. And so that, that's a, a why you see a lot of guys going up there, obviously. And so even if we yeah. do fix the security situation, you'll still have that magnet uh, scenario that we have to contest with. Uh, that's kind of uh, Latin America in the last 49 years. <laughs> <laughs> I think we touched on a, a lot of stuff there. So, yeah, yeah it was uh, it, it was a, the best time of my life being stationed down there. Yeah. You know, we got to visit a lot of different countries. Um, you know, I worked in some of the same places you did at different times. And, um, you know, in the Andean Ridge stuff, um, I remember when I was, uh, they whittled the uh, the drug training mission from eighteen team down to three guys. And uh, me, Danny Carpinetti, Dave Ortiz were down there. And Colonel Scruggs came down and visited us with a Remo. And um, he, a lot of the uh, Honduras, uh, excuse me, Bolivian uh, hierarchy, I guess, had fond memories of Colonel Scruggs and it greased a lot of skids for us down there. Yeah, no, those long-term relationships work good. Yeah, it was a good time because we had autonomy and responsibility uh, at the small team level, you know, like that three-man team that you mentioned with uh, Danny Carpinetti. Uh, you guys were, uh, you know, the U.S. representatives in a wide swath of territory in Bolivia. And that's a, that's a big responsibility. You're not just a cog in the machine of a, you know, a conventional force moving uh, across the DMZ in Korea. You are this guy that is a U.S. representative down there. You're doing training and diplomacy and stuff like that. And I think that was, uh, uh, you know, a big attraction of being in the uh, seventh group at that time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, we got to do so much great stuff uh all of us. And it was just a, a really good time to be in seventh group at, during that era, because like you said, you know, when you took over the company, there was only two guys standing there. Yeah. Yeah. That was the, um, yeah, that, um, I see now the teams that are coming, uh, they've, uh, you know, I've been working uh, with the state department uh, since uh, 2001 and I've had pretty much during that whole time uh, an SF team that's helped me do the training uh, of the Hunglas for the 10 years I was there and then Honduras for five years when I was there. And uh, I can see a very uh, uh, more intense uh, uh, maturity in the sense of, uh, you know, the combat skills because the guys knew from their multiple tours into the, those uh, combat zones that tonight could be that night. And so uh, their war fighting skills are uh, very uh, supreme in that sense. Uh, but what they miss out on was that trip to Ecuador, the trip to Bolivia, the counter, the comparison with Honduras, with El Salvador, and, and that sort of stuff that can only come from being there on the ground. Uh, but when it came to putting together an eight-week training program, let's say in uh, La Patarique, Honduras, the guys did a, a great job that uh, had just come out of Afghanistan the month prior, you know. So... Uh, as far as that sort of quality we had, you know, it's as good as, uh, as it's ever been in that sense. Excellent. Well, sir, um, we don't want to yeah. take up all of your, of your vacation time. I know you're visiting family members here in the States right now. And uh, 
Yeah. I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. It, it was great yeah. to talk to you again. And uh, let's do this again real soon. All right, Steve. Well, thank you very much. And I'm glad I was able to catch up with you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, for all of us here at SoftRep Radio and SoftRep.com, thanks for listening. Uh, please check out our podcast. Once we post it up, it'll be there'll be a video on YouTube of this and as well as an audio version on our website. From all of us here at SoftRep Radio, uh, we want to thank you all for listening. And thanks to our guest, Kevin Higgins, sir. It was, a, again, it was a pleasure. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you, Steve. Uh, Have a great day. You too. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio.